Welcome to my coaching podcast, Dancing in the Moment, where I chat to people from the world of coaching and psychology about their story, their approach, and their insights about the coaching profession. They're all people I like, respect, and admire for the way they show up in the world. I hope you enjoy it. So I'm here today with Claire Brees, who is, among other things, a coach. Um, And um, this is kind of a podcast interview about really this much I know. I'm talking to people about how they've got where they are today, what they know at this point in their life and any wisdom that they want to pass on to the listeners of this podcast. So, Claire, hi. Hello, that's a tall request, isn't it? It is in 20 minutes. Well, let's try doing it in five. Shall we? (laughs) (laughs) Um, First of all, I know a little bit about your story, but would you mind just running through it for the people who are going to listen to this? So for the past um, 20 years... I have been in a business partnership in a business that I co-created called Reboom. Um, in fact, we celebrated our 20th anniversary in November. And um, in a way, that's probably a good place, a lens through which to tell this story because we started that business off on a kitchen table 20 years ago. We were trying to presence in to what we thought was a problem 20 years ago, which was that there was a lack of skilled psychological work in the strategy discourse as that 20 years ago seemed like an unusual thing to do yeah i believe that yeah Yeah. and uh and we were both intrigued kirsch and i were both intrigued by that process because we had witnessed how people were almost binary they could be quite kind quite caring as leaders quite Uh people-centred and then it would sort of switch off and then the strategy conversation would come into play and it was almost like witnessing different beings engaged in that and so the the lack of integration seemed to be a profound missing and it didn't seem that there was much of a place inside organisational life for those two things to be brought together very successfully so that's really how we started and we, we wanted to be a strong challenge to that pattern of habitual thinking that there were two domains and they weren't connected. Yeah. 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 And and to have reached that kind of realization, had you had you both worked in strategy, had you both worked in large organizations? I think Kershaw had had more experience of being employed by large organisations uh-huh. and I had, I'd had more experience of facilitating and working as a coach yeah. in those organisations and witnessing the difference. Yeah. And then we encountered each other because I was his coach. Okay. And um, <clears throat> I should really leave him to tell that story, but broadly speaking, he was suffering at the time. And the coaching process actually helped him I think to integrate those two parts of himself more Mm. effectively and then I witnessed him 
exhibiting an enormous amount of learning agility around all of that. So of course I wanted to work with him. Yeah. Of course we wanted to work together. And and if this much I know is that I feel intensely lucky to have had a 20-year working relationship where the quality of trust is insurmountable. The quality of inquiry is as good as it was when we started. And I think, I mean, because it's possible to delude oneself, but it still feels to me like that's the case. Yeah. And the, the practitioner experience of treating the whole process as an inquiry, a lived inquiry, has been alive with the two of us in the business ever since. And I love all of that because I think when you have a great coach, you have profound relationship you can integrate and hold many modalities and you can have this lived inquiry going on with you which which serves a bigger purpose than just one particular goal you're working on it's uh, it's a way to wake up actually yeah um so the process the process has kept us awake and it's kept our work awake and i think i think that the consistency of the relationship and the consistency of the working alliance ironically has actually been a strength rather than a weakness i think we might live in a world where you know you extract what you can from one relationship and then you move on and you have mm. some novelty and you move on to something else but actually sitting through the boredom sometimes <laughs> and sitting through the familiarity i think we've made more breakthroughs that way um i I'm, I'm reminded as you talk of um the Gottman's work on mm. married couples yes, yes. Uh, and something they say which is quite flip but actually I think it's also quite wise which is that you know a good relationship a good marriage they say um, it can be defined as quite liking each other for most of the time they, uh, that's beautiful isn't it yeah that's beautiful yeah I, I think there's something deeply important in that. Yeah, and 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 mm. and hanging on in there when yeah. you're not liking each other yeah. so much and inquiring into what's yeah. what's causing that. I think that's true because we do, we're you know we're we're like I mean, we are obviously different in all sorts of ways and we have we have different paths. I mean, I, I took some time out of the business to train as a as Zen, Zen reverend, as Zen monk, and 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 you know he maintained the business and then he took a sabbatical and then I worked in the business and. So I think I think you have to have the working alliance actually is the ability to collaborate and if there's one thing I think is really a test these days people talk a lot about teamwork uh. but I think I think what underpins that is the willingness to collaborate yeah we you know we talk a lot about people need to be accountable they need to show up they need to be accountable for what they produce in the business I don't think we talk anywhere near enough about learning how to collaborate with each other the skill and the mindset associated with collaboration is the ability to bend without breaking. Yeah. It's the ability to enter into a dialogue and be willing to be altered by it, even if you have a strong opinion that you strongly hold. Yeah. It's the ability to want to provide something to someone else that enables them to accelerate what you're all trying to cause. Yeah. And, and I don't think we're well designed for that. It's really I'm, not well designed for it. I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in it from an organisational perspective mm. when we go in and work with mm. teams. 
But I'm also interested in it from the perspective of people who are perhaps listening to this podcast who are working in partnership with another coach. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's hard to ask you 20 years worth of sort of wisdom and experience, but what what would you say are the kind of key pieces of learning I suppose about keeping that working alliance strong and flexible and generous those are such nice words I mean in a way you've sort of answered some of it haven't you strong flexible and generous so I think you need to be strong in your own purposefulness but not strong in a fixed identity Mm. And I think the way to do that is, A, not to take yourself too seriously, and B, not to assume you know. One of the great things, from my point of view, in the Zen practice is this vow of not knowing. Mm. And um, I've, I've talked about it fairly regularly over the years, but I find that to be a profound help, really. Because uh, I don't know that much about myself. I certainly don't know that much um, in, a, in a presupposed way about the other. Mm. And I think, I think when you're going to collaborate in service of a team or in service of an organisation with a group of other coaches. It's really, really important to have quiet purpose about what you're there for, but not believe your own press and not have such a fixed identity that you can't step back and learn to dance or learn to improvise around other people's great work. Mm. You know, and I think we had, a, we had a colleague in our business for a while who taught me a lot about improvisation. And we we used it as a way of really shaking ourselves up and making ourselves more flexible. Yeah. In in the way that you were describing earlier, that idea that I, you give me something to work with. I don't know what you're giving me, and I don't say, well, no, that's not what I was expecting. Mm. I had this agenda. I had this line of inquiry. I'm going back to my line of inquiry. Yeah. You give me whatever you give me, and I say yes and. I take it and I build on it. Yeah. So there's a kind of an alchemical flow yeah. between people working together. And I I think that's really important in the coaching community, actually. It it seems really important for us to, to, to be less individuated in a curious kind of yeah. way. Uh, we have to do the work on ourselves. We have to do the work. We're sitting one-on-one, so there is this sense of the individual working with another individual... We need a strength of purpose. We need a clear identity. At, at the same time, we need to be much more in flow. Yeah. Taking, receiving, offering, being grateful, coming back. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm thinking rather selfishly as you're talking about our um, alumni network at Barefoot. Yes. Um, so I, yeah, we've. I think we've trained close to 4,000 people now which is amazing Um, and I have always encouraged total collaboration so we have a a, a sort of you know group online group where people can post requests updates um, asking us for help Mm. Um, they can promote what they're doing so people are uh, right now promoting retreats Mm. and courses Mm. and sometimes people from outside say 
No, this is crazy because you're all in competition with one another. So oh. why are you letting oh. other coaches yeah. promote their services on yeah. your site? Yeah. And I have, um, I have joy yeah. in the success of the people that we've taught. Yeah, I'm really. joyful for them, but I'm joyful for me because it's yeah. our success too. Yeah. I love to see them flying. Yeah. I love many of them have exceeded my um, successes. In fact, we're sitting here today in the beautiful Knightsbridge mm. offices mm. of somebody who mm. once came on my program there and has go. a global yeah. exec yeah. coaching company. Yeah. And yeah. we're working here in their office thanks to their generosity. It's beautiful, though, isn't it? Because I think, you know, we want, we want people to be great coaches, actually, because our industry is, and all of us are damaged by bad ones. Yeah. We're, we're, we're more damaged by that than we are by the competition, in inverted commas, yeah. great ones, I think. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. I was once in a, in a meeting in a, in a client organisation where all the external executive coaches came together for a couple of times um, every year, and I noticed, after I'd done it a couple of times, that the format of it was everybody was invited to speak about their experience of their part of their work within the bounds of confidentiality. And and it was a it was a tutorial lesson in uh, superiority. <laughs> and it did give me the giggles and uh, and the organization was having a bit of trouble with something which no one really knew how to solve. And so I suggested that a bunch of us got our heads together with with some of the internal people um, and and kind of just sat there in the state of our ignorance. And, 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 and in the state of our ignorance, try to just try to find not solutions, but kind of methodology to help shift it. Yeah. And I was prepared to share anything I had. And in the coffee break, uh, one of these very well-known coaches came up to me and he said, um, it's a fantastic idea, he said, what you're promoting, but it won't work. And I said, oh. You know uh, that, do you? This is a coach, <laughs> right? It won't work. So I said, oh. Oh, that's that's a shame. What? Why won't it work? And he said, "Well, um, I'm not going to give you my my company secrets." Mm. And I was like, "Wow, oh, I'm perfectly prepared to give you mine." Yeah. Are you not going to play now? No. Have it all. Yeah. And it was an extraordinary moment. He said, "I'm just not as well developed as you." I said, "No, I don't think it's got anything to do with being well developed. I think it's about generosity and maybe a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a coach." As opposed to run a coaching business. Yeah. yeah. It was it was a really intriguing yeah. movie. Yeah. I, and I, I, it hurt my heart a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I bet to be it honest, did. Yeah. So maybe that's another learning. Maybe there's, there's um, the, 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 the business of being a coach and, and the business of running a coaching business are not disconnected. They are one and the same. Yeah, yeah. They are one and the same. And again, it's a bit like the kind of, exactly as you began, you know, that mindset of the people stuff mm. and then the strategy mm. stuff. Yeah, there we go. It's just the same, same thing, isn't, isn't it? it? Yes. We're thrown to binaries, aren't we? Yeah. And, I, and I've wrestled with that and struggled with that yeah. because there's a kind of still, you know, still, I'm, I'm, referencing external consultants here people that i've paid that i've brought in to say oh i'm just a coach <laughs> i'm just a little coach but i don't know how to run a business 
Um, yeah, because that was my that yeah. was my belief. Yeah. yeah, I know how to do this one to one sitting opposite someone. I've got great ideas and lots of creativity, but I don't know how to run a business. And so I had given to me all those kind of old mm. antiquated yeah. models yeah. Yeah. about how you run a business, and I kind of thought, oh, I've got to constrain myself. I've got to now put myself in yeah. a different kind of straight jacket here and yeah. I've got to learn things that I've never known before yeah and and it took me quite some time to come back to the place where I started which was that just being a coach and running a business I'm going to have a better coaching business than yeah. I would have yeah I uh, totally see that I, to- I mean I've when you say that I totally resonate with it one of the great joys of my coaching career has been to, to find a working expression for all of that, which has not been dictated to by a convention of business and a conventional norm. Now, we all know that we need to have cash flow. And we all need, you know, if, if money is energy, we need a flow of all of that and yeah. everything else. But to all intents and purposes, we, we have really deeply experimented with running a business in the spirit of coaching in the spirit of human development in the spirit of transparency in the spirit of participation in the spirit of collaboration and it's I'm not saying it's been easy no um but I wouldn't trade that I would not trade that and I'm I'm now I don't know what am I now I get confused about age 56 shortly I wouldn't trade it so there's there's no way I would consider uh, trading at that when I look back um over that lineage mm. I feel that it's been better for me as a practitioner to integrate my business life with my coaching practitioner philosophy yeah as closely as possible actually. yeah yeah and i haven't therefore felt separated or stretched no, quite as much i i totally get it every time i do there is an incongruence Mm. every time i conform to expectations of being a boss Mm. there Mm. is an incongruence within me Mm. um i don't do it well i only do well what you do what i do yeah 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 on that um when we had that uh, 20th anniversary celebration and um, one of the things we did um was uh, i invited people i called elders and uh, they were people who had effectively taught me before I set up the business. And I could have invited, there were many, so there's a, there's a list, uh, it's a very long list, but in, in our tradition we, we describe it as a lineage, yeah. this idea that yeah. you, you have people who have done their work before you who with generosity pass that on to yeah. you. And, and then you're, that you're then part of a continuous flow and so on the evening that we did it, um, I'd invited, I invited four elders to come. And one of them told me afterwards he wasn't too keen on the idea of being described as an elder, <laughs> but he kind of got it. And, and I invited um, the first person to give me exposure to the therapeutic world, and um, who was an extraordinary facilitator and a really amazing counsellor. And I learned at a very early age so much from him. And I've continued to work with him in lots of different ways over the years and um, the, 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 I saw who I wanted to be so yeah. I was very unformed I was very young I needed to do loads of work on myself but what he was offering 
was an authentic embodied practice of that not perfection but an authentic embodied yeah. practice and a, and a super sharp mind and um, I found that totally like liberating and um, so I had him I had him for that and then I had um, I did a master's degree at Surrey University oh, no, I had a crazy title I think it was called Change agent skills and strategies <laughs> Snappy. For, in, for individuals, <laughs> teams and groups, and the whole organisation. Da da. And um, uh, and there was a um a woman who was a prof who taught on that, who. Really, really, it did two things for me. She, she taught me to deeply critically reflect in a way that I'd not really had exposure to mm. that before, and she never took anything seriously. She took it seriously, but she didn't take it seriously. So she brought what I call the right level of attention to things that were important yeah. without turning them into some heavy... Difficult, yeah, yeah, lovely. It's a skill, yeah, holding really. it lightly. Yeah, yeah. Really. yeah. And, um, and she turned <coughs> up um, with her daughter. She, she suffers from arthritis. She was on stick. She turned up with her daughter. Um, I hadn't seen her for a little while. And um, she's in her late 70s now. Uh, just an extraordinary human being, still practicing, still rocking people's worlds. You know, just great to have her there. And then the other two people I asked to come as elders were the two people that taught me coaching supervision. And um, and I invited them because they, in very different ways, had enabled me to see that the coaching conversation and and the supervision conversation are a really interesting um, angle on the, what future might look like. Mm. Yeah, so I'm intrigued by um, the supervision conversation as a superordinate conversation for really experienced clients and really experienced coaches. Yeah. And, and they really helped me play with that yeah. very graciously. So it was wonderful to have these people be acknowledged by all of the clients that came, because we invited all of our clients oh, who've gosh. been coming, and so we had clients from 20 plus years yeah. ago, right the way through to the most recent set. And I laid it out in the room with the elders at one end and then talked a little bit about them and then clients as we got to the end. And there was a gap at the end of the room. I put a big question mark on the end of the room. And I, I think it was about, you know, here we are in this continuum where we've all been practicing in our way. There were leaders there. There were coaches there. There were people from all sorts of industries. People I've not seen for a while. People I'm constantly in contact with. People's stories were just incredible about how they'd used the work, what they'd done with it, how they'd spread it. And then we were investigating. What does it mean to pass it on? Yeah. What does it mean to know that you're actively part of a lineage? Which I think takes us back to that collaboration thing. Yeah. That you're, you, you don't own it all because you're standing on the shoulders of people 30, 40, 50 years ago depending on when they started to practice have been taking this work from varying fields and bringing it into a contemporary construction for the challenges we face today uh, and doing it with great heart and great courage and great skill Yeah. and we stand, I stand on all of that Yeah. and their clients benefit from it but they also stand on it too yeah. and, then, and then you can get to that point in your life hence the age conversation where you can think well I'm kind of done now but it seems to me that there's a there's a gifting and an enabling part to this which is 
promote the lineage, keep the Absolutely. lineage going. You know, see yeah. the lineage beyond yourself, really, and and really make that possible. And and why I think that's so exciting for coaches is because we do work a lot on our own, and we do work with our clients, but mainly on our own. I think you have to know that you're part of something, and you have to know that you're not alone. You know. I love that so much. In fact, I'm ready to be considered an elder. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being invited in as an elder to yeah. some people's celebrations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've made me think so much about a number of things. One of them is, you know, we run a, a coaching skills for parents and family mm. life programme. Mm. And one of the main messages we give in that is your children learn you. Mm. They learn you. Mm. They don't learn what you tell them to do. They learn what they see you doing. And I I was thinking about that ever so much in terms of those early influences in our Mm. lives. Mm. You know, in order to be this flexible, generous, Mm. collaborative person, Mm. you need to have had it done to you. You need to know what it feels like, to know that it works, that it's safe. And therefore, all the more reason we we continue the lineage. Yeah. And and um, as you were speaking, I thought about really early, early on in my sort of career in personal development. Um, I trained as a, a facilitator of a women's development program. Um, and I was just like so many coaches coming on my program now really enthusiastic, determined to change my career direction Mm. um, and totally naive about the realities of selling this programme in. I thought once I had that (laughs) programme, that I am, it was springboard, it's still going, a springboard women's development um, leader, people be knocking on my door and it absolutely didn't happen and I didn't know how to make it happen Mm. either. And there was a woman who was a lot older than me, um, seemed like really old at the time, she's probably my age now, <laughs> in her 60s. <laughs> but, and she'd been delivering this programme for a long time and she gave me a leg up. Really? Yeah. She said, look... I'm delivering this programme in this finance company. Mm. I really don't want to do it myself. It was com- a complete construct. She just wanted to help me. She said, will you come along and do it with me? Beautiful. And that was... And as you were talking about that, I thought, mm. oh, my goodness, Gina, her name was. Mm. Um, it, 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 it taught me so much. Yeah. Yeah. It taught me so much about um, her willingness to be generous. And I honestly feel that I owe her that in the way that I have continued the lineage from her. Beautiful idea. It's gorgeous. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm always encouraging people to um, construct a lineage actually for themselves um, in all sorts of ways, you know, to, to think about people, to call them up. I sometimes do some embodied work with people where we get them to think about people and then notice the impact it has on their physical presence notice the impact it has when they're facing a difficulty so you can use it in lots of different ways but I think I think what your story illustrates and what mine was attempting to is is this coaching is a generous practice yeah it's it's a practice of generosity it is yeah and it, it so therefore if the practice is a generous practice the business practice should be a generous practice yeah the whole engagement 
is a generous practice. Yeah. So we can we can learn to embody generosity, asking questions rather than filling the space. I mean, all these kinds of things. Are, it, it just runs sweetly right through the whole thing. Yeah. You know, and I, I feel like that context for it. You know, in in the in the struggle to find clients and and in the, and all the things that we have to face can sometimes be lost, and of we need course. to keep returning. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a super generous thing. Yeah, and it, I I really empathise with people who are struggling to get clients, struggling yeah. to earn money. Yeah. They have all this uh, good-hearted yeah. enthusiasm about spreading the word, and they can't yes. manage to do it. So yeah. I get why generosity mm. gets lost and competitiveness yeah. takes over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea of building communities where you work together yeah. reflect and inquire and that's where supervision can come in I, really I yeah I'm sure you do the same but I strongly encourage people to come for supervision even before they have any clients yeah, because it's absolutely. it's about embedding this kind of coaching yeah. attitude of generosity throughout all they do I, th- I think I mean, we started out, you know, 20 years ago with this view that um, there was something to be done. We didn't quite know how to do it, but that we would use ourselves and the business. I call it a numinous inquiry, basically. And broadly speaking, oh, that sounds a bit pompous. Anyway, what I really mean by that is that I treat my life as an experiment. Mm. I treat my work as an experiment. I don't go knowing everything. I go willing to be surprised or altered by what I discover about myself or about the work. Now, sometimes I, I... pull out of my pocket things I've done before because I have belief in their efficacy I suppose but quite a lot of the time I think the whole thing is just a constant inquiry mm-hmm. I'm, and I love that about it I, I think I wouldn't have been able to do it for 30 years if I'd been bored by it no you know yeah and yeah. I, I think the I mean it's definitely the case that, that, that the, the market for it has completely changed I mean when I started 30 years ago no one knew what they were doing no. to be honest with you and now it's a very mature market, and I think, I think it's actually at a point of transition. I think it's really radically changing, and there are many more people who are uh, training as coaches. I think what we might have to really start opening up is, where does the coaching skill lend itself to um, encouraging new dialogue and new conversations in different places, so that we, we, we may see ourselves not just as coaches, but the fosterers of dialogue and the fosterers of the willingness to be altered in all sorts of different environments. So the identity of a coach, Mm. I think, may have to shift as the market matures and and as we start to really investigate what's really needed as a conversation in the world we're living in now. And and I feel like it's already moving a bit more in that direction, yeah. do you? You know, yeah, from the 30 years ago when yeah. we both started, yeah. it was very much kind of, you know, you don't look backwards, you only look forward, yeah. you set goals, it was men in suits, it yeah. was, oh, we're not going there. And, yeah. and actually I see the people who've come through our programme doing wonderfully, gloriously inventive uh, styles of coaching That's with great. people in all sorts of different contexts yeah. um, and that of course within that you know the boundaries between therapy and coaching have blurred further and further they really have and they will continue to do so I think yeah. I know this is a this is a discomforting topic for some people yeah 
And I know that people get quite activated about this. And I don't say that negatively because we understand the value of boundaries and safe practice. Uh But we are living in a world that is rapidly blending and becoming rapidly transparent. People tell other people online that they don't know intimate things about their mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm not I don't make a judgment about whether that's right or wrong, but the fact is the context we're working in and how people are accessing information and sharing information about themselves more publicly means that holding boundaries between these things it, it is a strange disconnect. It's important, it's really important to have boundaries and skill and capability. At the same time People are perfectly willing to put something out online and get 20 people's opinions about yeah. it these days. Yeah. yeah. I, have a, I have a really good example of that in terms of coaching. You've just made me think. I think it was probably about 10 years ago I spoke at a coaching conference uh, and I was speaking about the need to be bolder, mm-hmm. for coaches to be bolder. Mm. And within that, I made a passing comments to bereavement and it really sparked a really extreme response from a number of people in the audience who said we don't deal with bereavement that's blurring the boundaries that's for therapists and I remember saying you know who among us isn't going to be bereaved yes exactly um but it shook me, although I sort of styled it out quite well, it shook me. And I, I felt like I tend to do that. I, I, I'd got it wrong. Uh, um, and, it, and I was quite upset by that uh, conference talk. And then just uh, in November, um, a, a sort of coaching pool, you know, there where um, local authorities have a pool of yeah. coaches. They had a conference and they were talking about well-being and they asked me to speak and they said, what can you speak on? And I said, how about grief? Mm. And they said, oh, don't, don't know. It might be a bit okay. of a step too far, but okay, we'll, we'll give you like one or four afternoon workshops okay. so people can choose. Okay. So I said, okay, that's fine. So there were 200 people at this conference and in the afternoon, over 100 of them had piles in. Came for a bit of grief. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We, I don't think we can hold boundaries in the same way as we used to hold them. We can hold skill in the same way. We can hold um, capability in the same way. Mm. But we, we need to start looking at why we're invested in not letting certain conversations take place where people want them to take place. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that, seems, that seems fear-based to me and too traditional. I mean, I, I sit with people who are dying. I think you know that. And, um, I know, yeah. And uh, I don't know, I don't profess to be a coach or anything else. I'm just sitting there. Yeah. And I sometimes, if people are able to speak, I, we talk, uh, they might ask me questions, I might ask them some questions. Sometimes I don't say anything. Now, I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. All I know is that that's one human being sitting with another human being at a point of transition. The transition just happens to be going through a door they're not going to come back from. Um, and I and all I think that that takes, frankly, is a willingness to be intimate with that experience. I don't say to myself, well, 
you're going through your dying process, but if you start asking me questions about what happened when you were in your family of origin, I, I go, I say, could you just hold that question? I'll go and get you a therapist. Or if someone says to me, will you pray with me? Could you just hold that question? I'll go and get you a, a member from the Church of England. I don't do that no. because that's not what's needed. What's needed is, is to be there fully in the moment, intimately, in service. I don't distinguish at that moment in time and I wouldn't distinguish at that moment in time if I was in a coaching scenario with someone but I would once we had entered a new territory recontract or ask people to think about other resources that were available to them but I certainly wouldn't go into freeze and go no 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 which is effectively what happens when coaches are really really worried because I wouldn't do that at the risk of altering the discourse or changing working lines. I just wouldn't do that because I'm sitting in front of people who have been through psychometric tests, have had a lot of self-awareness in some of the big organisations they work in, who read Psychology Today magazine, yeah, um, probably uh, talk online with people about mental health issues because we're being encouraged to talk about those things much more openly. And then I would say that doesn't fit my model of where you should be having a conversation with me. All we have to do is, is subtly but clearly notice the shift and think about the consequences of it and then decide what to do with it. Agree. I agree. And I also, uh, um, when we teach our coaching programme, we, like most others, I think, we're very, very... Um, focused on the non-expert role of the yeah, coach yeah. Uh, and holding the other person in a space of respect mm. as a thinking adult mm. who's making their own choices mm. and I think that kind of you know that working alliance yeah. is the foundation of yeah. uh, that level of flexibility yeah. within uh, because they are choosing they are choosing yeah. it's to well tell said. you that it's, yeah. it's really well said and I, I mean, even in this conversation, I can feel the slight edge in myself of going to, you know, of talking about this publicly. There's a slight edge to it because I think it does, it does invoke very strong defensive structures in people. It does invoke very, very strong senses of boundaries about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And I, I really understand that. But when you divest yourself of your strong attachments and you look at what's actually happening, yeah. How people are actually relating to themselves, yeah. how they're relating and using different modalities for sharing very different, quite intimate parts of themselves, publicly on an ongoing basis. I don't make a judgment about it. I'm just looking at what's happening. Yeah, we don't live in a world anymore where those boundaries are so clearly defined. We don't live in a world anymore where people will say, "Well, I'll do this, and then I'll go off and find someone over there." People are looking immediately for an integration. A place to a container to hold what they want to work on. Mm. I, I think it's really interesting that you've identified that sort of little sense of concern within you about having this conversation because it's in me too. It always is when I have yeah, it. Yeah. I was a therapist. Okay. I think you have you yeah. also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not practicing now, yeah. but I was a therapist. So I've got that kind of therapy. You know, yeah. imagining yeah. what the therapeutic profession yeah. are thinking as we're talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think there's a sort of parallel process going on with what you first started speaking about, which is 
being confined by certain constructs and we are still being confined yes. by that construct yeah. even in this conversation. Yes, it's true. And it's true. Um, yeah. actually, if I, if I know, if I access my heart, my experience, my body, I know that there is a fluidity about those conversations that spans lots and lots of disciplines yeah. and it's okay. Yes, yes. But there's something in my head that's going, oh, hang on a minute, you know, what does the law say? Yeah, 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 it's, a, it's an intriguing thing. Isn't it's a it? really intriguing thing. And I, I think um, someone once said to me many years ago, and I really like it, and I think, um, know the... F- know the... Know the form in order to be formless. Know the form in oh. order to be formless. I think that comes from Tai Chi. And um, it struck me. I mean, this, I am talking 15 years ago, and it's, it's, it potently stuck with me, this idea of, I think it's true in nearly every discipline. So, you know, when I look at Matisse, for example, as, as a painter and a sculptor, Matisse was perfectly able to represent in anatomical detail the human form. And could do that because he was trained to do that. So he knew the form. And then as he was growing in capability and experimentation and artistic endeavour and inquiry, he was producing forms that were simplified versions or radical alterations. But it wasn't that he couldn't do the form. It's that he was practising formlessness. And I think that would be true of Picasso. And I think it's true of our practice, actually. I think it's good to get depthful grounding in as many of those really great practices as possible that, that, that suit your purpose and suit what you're trying to cause in your work and to do them with reverence in the sense of taking them really seriously, the disciplines that's required, the apprenticeship that's required with it all, but not learn to have formlessness because it's only fear that stops you doing mm-hmm. that. It's constraint and fear. And, and there, is a, there is a degree of being willing to put in the work and then dance put in the I, I took a friend of mine she's got alzheimer's and um i took her to a dancing class now no one should come to a dancing class with me because <laughs> i mean it's ugly it's really ugly okay um, i'm just sorry unless it's james brown i just can't do it um, and and ballroom dancing it would be like the antithesis of what i can manage okay so we go to this dance class and the, the chap who was teaching absolutely fantastic grabbed hold of her and swung her around and said come on then let's see what you're made of and, and you know within a few minutes the form had come back to her even though she's not able to hold a knife and fork yeah the form of the cha-cha-cha yes came back to her yeah absolutely fantastic to watch and I'm a complete novice. I haven't, I haven't forgotten how to do it. I've never done it. No. So I realised that um, I will not be able to swan around the dance floor until I've learned the form, yeah. the cha-cha-cha. You're going from formless to form uh, yes, at and the it's moment. A, it's, a, it's a hard yeah. old gig, actually. It's a hard <laughs> old gig. The process of unlearning what you don't actually know anything about. Ooh. But I think, there is, I think there is something in that about co- contemporary coaching in a contemporary world. I think still faces the challenge of the discipline of the form and the formlessness, the formlessnessness of um, improvisation, of meeting people where they are, yeah. of collaboration, of dance, um, of invention, actually. We have yeah. to keep inventing our form. And the formlessness for the right intentions as yeah. well in yeah. service of the yeah. other person because yeah. I have... Yeah, I think I've sometimes experienced yeah. formlessness that suited yes 
yeah, the yeah. coat. Yes, I'm yeah. sure that's right. Yeah. Oh, this is my new thing. Yeah. I'm experimenting exactly. with it. Do you want to try it? Yeah. 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 I'm sure I've been guilty of that over and over again. I'm so captivated by this thing I invented. Yeah. And now I'm going to make gonna it, do it fit. Exactly. Yeah, Claire, we're cool. kind of out of time. Hey. Yes. There's, a, there's a chocolate biscuit on that plate there's and I'm going to eat it. Right, you certainly <laughs> earned it. Thank you so much for all that. All that stuff that you yeah, know. Bless was you. Wonderful. Really, really great to be in conversation with you. My two palms are slapping together in your direction. Thank you. Thank Mine you. are back. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs>